Hello and welcome to another episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Owatari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man who will probably use his golf clubs as a refrigerator. <laughs> I am the Adam Glass, and uh, you got to make ends meet somewhere. Yeah, you I know, guess. you got to make sacrifices. I'm sure they'll keep the food pretty cold. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how much fifty thousand yen is, but it seems bucks. like. It seems like an amount of money I could not actually ask my parents for no, any time yeah. in my entire life. So, I don't. I don't. So know. I don't really have that issue. I don't know what fifty thousand yen is in in nineteen sixty two dollars though, and now it would yeah. be about five hundred bucks. But Well, Pat, before we get too far into this, I do want to introduce our guest. We've got Adam Speakerman joining us. Hello, Adam. Hello. How are you guys? I'm doing well. Good, how are yeah. you this week? Doing all right. Yeah. Adam, you uh, you asked to join us for uh, this is, I don't think this is the Criterion Collection's last Ozu, but it is his final film. You spent February rewatching all of Ozu's films. No, uh, well, everything post-war, basically. Everything yeah. post-war. <laughs> um, and I wound up doing that because back in the days when Criterion was on Hulu, they announced they were ending, they were on Hulu, and I thought to myself at that time, oh no, there's all these extremely rare Ozu films, like from the 30s uh, and 40s that I've never seen. So I watched them all in like a one-month rush, like one after another. Um, and uh, when I finished that, I was like, ah, you know, I barely remember some of the ones that I watched in film school, like Late Spring and Tokyo Story. I should really rewatch all of like the post-war films too. And then I never did. Uh, so knowing that we, when we recorded Le Bonheur last uh, summer, and I said, oh, maybe I could jump on the Ozu one, I was thinking after... Around the holidays, I was started thinking like, oh, I need to watch Autumn Afternoon. We'll probably record that in the spring sometime. And uh, around the time I was about to like watch it, I was like, I do want to rewatch Tokyo Story and like late spring. And before I knew it, I was like, oh, I'll just start with the first post-war film and like work my way through. So, <laughs> ah, well, it's a it's a good a good way to spend some time. Mm -hmm. I was thinking when when you told me about that. Uh, I was thinking it was kind of unfair to the criterion of the Criterion Collection to introduce Pat and I to Ozu with Good Morning and to establish a level of fart jokes that just do not <laughs> just, exist yeah, in the rest of his work. Yeah, it doesn't really play out. It's a well, if if you watch Record of a Tenement Gentleman, which is a bad translation, or uh, Equinox Flower, there's plenty of bodily humor jokes in those movies. Okay, so, good, yeah. good, good. <laughs> At least there's more to discover. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, well, we are watching an autumn afternoon, but before we talk about the movie, let's talk about our Patreon. Patreon.com slash Lost in Criterion. If you want to support us, keep us going. We greatly appreciate it. Greatly appreciate just listening. If you don't have the money to support us, we're glad you're here anyway. But for just a dollar a month you get access to a bonus episode you get to vote on what that bonus episode is going to be you get to maybe suggest a bonus episode if you suggest one you probably get to be on it adam's got some experience <laughs> with that uh 
real fun time watching uh watching some Buster Keaton movies with Adam a few months ago on the bonus episode. Yep. But that is just a dollar a month. We also over there have uh for the dollar a month here an increasing slowly increasing amount of sort of outtakes from uh from the main podcast here. Not not goof ups so much as uh, <laughs> ups. just just stuff that got uh, got a little too far even for us away from the topic at hand. <laughs> It started with a fantastic conversation with our friend Stephen Goldmeyer about uh, about the auteur theory applied to video games that uh, I don't even remember what movie we were talking about because it was so disconnected yeah, from that I don't conversation. But I wanted to I wanted to share it nonetheless, so I I put it up that way, and we've been kind of adding to that. It's uh, it's rare rare that I have anything I want to cut out of these episodes. Usually, you've heard our podcast, you know. Uh, this is kind of a leave-it-in sort of podcast, so we just have the conversation as it goes and, and edit very little. But but over there, like I said, patreon.com slash lost in criteria. A dollar a month gets you access to all that, let you vote on the bonus episodes, suggest bonus episodes if you like it. A little above that, $5 a month. We thank those people on air. Stephen Goldmeyer, who we already mentioned, is our only $5 supporter right now. Very grateful for him, too, for that. He uh, he changed that while we were recording and didn't tell us. <laughs> yeah, He's sneaky, yeah. sneaky Stephen. Um, but uh, a little above that, ten dollars and above a month, we do something I think is pretty special. Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we watched recently. Mm-hmm. We get that printed up on a postcard. I write a little thank you note for that and send that off. It's uh, it's fun. We also like to thank those ten dollars and above supporters on air. Adam's one. Hey, thanks, Adam. You're well, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you also to Patrick Yako, Michael McGrath, Jason Westhaver, and Christopher Otto for your $10 and above supports. Again, that is patreon.com slash lost in criterion. And again, this week, we're talking about An Autumn Afternoon. Directed by Ozu, came out in 1962. It is the last film he made before he died in 63. Uh, It is thematically very similar to a lot of other Ozu we've watched. Not that there's anything wrong with that. The band did have a tendency to remake the same movie over and over again, it seems. Uh, But they're all worth watching so far. So at least each iteration of it that we've seen. So uh, Uh, I I was doing some research while you were talking and about the exchange rate, and I realized something. I don't know how to read exchange rates. (laughs) Um, As far as I can tell, it was 350 yen to a dollar in 1960, or it was above that. And it it seems like the table plateaus, or the chart plateaus, so it could have been higher than that. Hard to tell. Uh, Which would have made 50,000 yen even less. It would have made it like, but then that was $1960, so who knows. But uh, it would have been not very much in the U.S. It would have been, divide, you know, by 350, so... It would have been all right. So, and then it sounds like it would have been about a about a about a buck fifty. Maybe, uh, if well, I'm doing that, no, on the no, no. I, I don't think I don't it's know. worth us investigating. But the point is, is it's not nowhere near five hundred dollars in even in nineteen sixty two dollars. It would have been like even at the time, it would not have been anywhere near five hundred dollars. It would have been like I see probably I see. like less. I don't know. It's really hard to do. It's been it would have been less than half of that. So it probably would have been like two hundred dollars. All right. Well, and that's really still, like me trying to do math in my head, which is a thing I'm notoriously bad at doing. So, <laughs> right, right, right. I can do it sometimes, unless I'm trying to keep 
like four different running tallies in my head as we discovered while trying to plan this when I was <laughs> transplant transferring time zones from Pat's time to my time and then to Adam's time which is Japan to Ohio back to California yeah it's and, almost uh, impossible frankly. Yeah. fried my brain trying to do that you essentially have to write it down or else it'll just kill you basically. I just I need that newsroom wall of yeah clocks. you have clocks yeah yeah absolutely yeah those are very that's that a, I can, a, yeah a, a severely underestimated feature of those newsrooms is just having <laughs> clocks everywhere. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, when I so, first moved here, um, the city hall in my town had a wall of those clocks for some reason. As well, that's though, like, it was important. I don't know why. They were like, so they you had like a huge long line of clocks telling different cities. And I was like, who's using this? Is this a thing? Are people coming <laughs> here? And like, I wonder what time it is in Kuwait. Uh, that kind well, of did you? Maybe if you had applied, you could have gotten Ohio time added true, because they true. represent all of the all of the immigrants. It, to the it might actually have, and I was just totally not understanding why it was there. That's a, definitely a possibility. There was no explanation See, attached to the wall clocks. It just was a wall <laughs> clocks. No plaque or anything. No, That's nothing, nothing. No explanation at all. One of oh. my uh, first jobs uh, working on American Idol, they had in their offices a wall of clocks in the three prominent top ones was Los Angeles, New York, and London, which were like the three relevant time zones for that show's producers. <laughs> that, at least that, yeah, at least that makes sense, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I, every time I walked I by just, the wall of clocks, I was like, this is bizarre, but also really cool. <laughs> I guess it's important when you're in LA not to, not to call London at 2 AM. Yeah. So. <laughs> Good to know. Oi. Uh, so yeah, in autumn afternoon, mm -hmm. uh, Wikipedia kindly tells me that this is, uh, considered by many to be one of Ozu's final, uh, finest works, which seems like a, a lot of iffy language. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it does. Um, uh, and, and, you know, go ahead. I also don't think there's a citation needed maybe on that <laughs> sentence too. So well, I don't want well, to put it out as true information I, I would say it's top five i, I have it yeah. at fifth for me so that makes it one of his best i would say go. so there you go yeah. but before and, i rewatched your many so yeah, before i rewatched it i would have had it down much further because the first time i watched it 15 years ago i kind of went over my head so like i just didn't respond yeah. to it yeah this is uh this is the first time i've watched it pat have you ever seen this before yeah i mean i have not watched it i mean i did watch uh late spring so i basically watched the same movie already um but uh i joke i guess that's fair it is very <laughs> yeah. very similar in plot <laughs> like very very similar in plot uh i'd say there there are some interesting differences to this from from other obviously there's a lot in common you know we both we both said that but there are some interesting differences i yeah. think one one interesting thing about this movie to me is how much of it takes place indoors. Yeah, uh, that's true. Yep. Like some of the other Ozu, a lot of the other Ozu we've watched takes place indoors, but there is still there's you know, an extreme of like spring, amount of indoors here. Thinking of thinking <laughs> of Tokyo Story, thinking of Good Morning. There's there's prominent outdoor shots in each of those movies that I can think of. Right. This one, the the only time we really go outdoors at all is the entrance to a bar. Right, which right. is only sort of nominally outdoors, right? It's still a sort of liminal <laughs> space with regards to the house or the building, right. you know what I mean? It's not really like, there's no actual open spaces. 
in this movie at all. Like yeah. you never like there's a few like probably almost borderline stock image shots of like smoke towers and stuff. But right. like there's no like, oh, this character yeah. standing in some sort of vista. It just doesn't happen there is, in this movie at all. There is at one point an establishing shot of uh of the older son's apartment building of people walking into right. it. Right, yeah, yeah. It's, and then like I the, to me that's that's sort of fitting into this like that could be literally any apartment building. Yeah. Like, I'm sure he shot it yeah. fresh. I mean, I'm sure it's not stock imagery, but it <laughs> might as well be in the sense that like you can find that building one bajillion times. Just like throw you can't swing a right, dead cat right. without hitting that apartment complex. Right. Um so it's sort of like Yeah. I think there's only one exterior scene in the film now that I think about it, and that's the uh, the like one minute we have on the train platform where yeah. uh right. Michiko's talking to Miura and Oh, it's like the end of Good Morning where they're like talking. They're literally saying nothing but kind of platitudes, but, you know, clearly right. supposed to be flirting. So. Right. Um, and uh, other than that, one of the most interesting things about the fact that there's no exteriors in this movie other than the B-roll between, you know, uh, scenes is when Ozu's cutting from one scene to another, when he cuts to any of the homes he never actually gives you, except for the apartment building about halfway through the movie, he doesn't give you any exteriors of those homes. And usually in all the Ozu movies I've been watching the last month, uh, you know, it's like a A, B, B, A or an A, B, C type of progression from one scene to another where you're like, OK, here's the exterior of the building we're leaving. Here's a wide shot of that building we're leaving. Here's a wide shot of the building we're going to enter. Here's a close shot of the exterior of the building we're going to enter. It's always very patterned, you know, with pretty basic like, you know, one, two, three or four shots. What's uh, different about this one is he cuts directly from like, OK, we've left. We're leaving the bar and we're just going to cut directly to the home and he you don't ever see an exterior of the home till the very end of the film when like they're doing the uh, preparations for the wedding uh, with the limos that have showed up and everything. Right. Uh, and that's really odd because Ozu always very like uses those exterior shots to like situate, you know, people's like homes and like, you know, signify like, oh, this is their home. Like this is the walkway up to the house, the walk that they do every day. You know, this is like kind of the neighborhood they're in. He's always giving you information like that about like, you know, just little like, you know, details about like where they live, what kind of life they live. And he's, you're not seeing any of that in here because the only place that is like coded that way as home is the bar where the three old guys hang out. Like, the bar right. is their home, in a way, in this Ozu film, which is very different from some of the others uh, in a subtle way. Right, right. With uh, with the Hirayama household, we're almost always established as being there with someone cl- having just closed the front door. Uh-huh. Right. Right, just arriving. With, with the apartment building, we get some hallway shots on some of those, but mm-hmm. often start inside the room, too. Uh but the bar is is usually much more vibrant uh and i think also of the of the scene with the uh the first reunion with the teacher where we don't even start in the room we start with the uh with the waitress going to two or three other rooms before she gets to that one mm-hmm. uh but still never the exterior it's also interesting switching to an ozu film because we've been 
we're coming off a streak of films by uh, Max O'Fools or O'Fools, ah. <laughs> who is very dynamic in his use of camera movements. <laughs> right. Uh, and does not like to edit so much. And Ozu similarly does not seem to edit individual scenes as much, but, uh, but takes a very different route. <laughs> I would certainly. Well, as an editor, I would disagree with that. I'd say most of his shots are three to four seconds long because he's uh, he always motivates a cut whenever someone is entering or exiting the frame or he cuts on action. Right. Like if someone reaches right. down to pick up something off the floor, you're going to cut to a new angle. Um, and if someone's going to walk through in the background, you'll cut to a slightly wider shot. It might be the same angle uh, so that that person will actually be in the frame as well. So there's a lot of Ozu imitators that like just like lock off their camera and are like, oh, I'm so Ozu. Like, you know, I'm just like this right. shot takes seven minutes and long of like just sitting here in this locked off shot looking at the interior of people like sitting talking but ozu doesn't do that his shots are are fairly quick uh like the scene itself is his shots are fairly quick relative to like you know people that think like long takes like ofuls or like you know hushashen and other like uh filmmakers in that vein of like the slow cinema type of thing um mm-hmm. now, compositionally uh, a lot of times what motivates those cuts, if it's not, you know, action or, you know, like someone entering or exiting, it's about, you know, refining a composition, giving you something that's like going to, you know, look really good. Like he, when we're in, uh, is it Koichi, I think is the son, the, their apartment, mm-hmm. and he has the golf clubs, like right. we cut to a side view of him and he's off centered just enough so that when he swings the golf club, the golf club stays fully in frame. Like, so like the composition is, you know, fully like contained by like what he's trying to do. Like, he's not right. Uh, like those sorts of things, like he's going to swing the golf club and like the shot's going to change and the composition's going to be enough to keep it all in frame. He's following a lot of like basic rules of filmmaking, which is why it's so infuriating to people like David Bordwell or most people that read, criticism of old criticism of Ozu today where they're like he's so mystical and un, you know you can't understand him and <laughs> like right, like right. I just don't get it. like because you know things like that he cuts fairly quickly like his compositions are always like pristine and like he cuts on action and all this all of these are just basic filmmaking things he's just refined his refined his particular style so much that right. it's very noticeable so um yeah uh, on on Ozu being mystical, there is a bonus feature <laughs> yeah. on, oh boy. on the DVD and on Criterion Channel here, uh, <clears throat> where it is uh, a French French television show. It's just excerpts from it. The whole thing's fifteen minutes long, and it it seems to cut it up a bit. But it is, uh, oh boy, is it, it is. something? It uh, is. It is rough. So it bad. is probably the it most Orientalist Inten- thing yeah. I've ever watched yeah. for this pro for this podcast, and that's saying yeah. something frankly <laughs> it seems to it seems to ratchet up the the mid-century french orientalism uh every second uh-huh. uh it's from november 28th or 26th 1978 it is the opening weekend for for uh for this movie an autumn afternoon in france um one of my favorite early bits in it is uh the first person they speak to which is the uh the critic uh Michel Simon, 
who uh, who says that you know Ozu Ozu had died 15 years ago, and his movies are just becoming popular in France, and they never really showed anywhere else in Europe. Now, 20 years ago, the English and the Americans were really into it, uh, or started getting into it. But but the English and the Americans are always much more into Asia than the French are. He says, which is a hell of a uh, statement. But <laughs> which is a hell of a statement. Um, that, that was the first time I had to stop it in the yeah, 15 yeah, minutes yeah. it ran, um, because the 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 French relationship to Asia is intertwined completely with the English and American relationship with Asia, particularly through the 20th century, um, and usually to the worse off of Asia for it, um, but. But they also cite, um, they talk about Paul Schrader's book on Ozu, uh, on Ozu, uh, Bresson, and Dreyer. Have you ever read that, Adam? I've read excerpts of that uh, book, and, you know, he's very, Schrader's very famous for his essay, like, Transcendental Style in Film, or something that yeah. I think led to that book. Uh, yeah. It's a lot of horseshit. <laughs> I, I'm sure it is, but... My impression from the excerpts I've read from that book were always that he was trying to draw a through line through Bresson, Dreyer, and Ozu as all doing a similar thing, perhaps from their own uh, their own you know cultural backgrounds, but all doing a similar thing cinematically. The citations that the Cinema Regard stuff does to Schrader's work, or just to further exoticize. Ozu, um, yeah, and the, I don't, I don't know if I completely got the wrong feeling of what the Schrader book was trying to do, but it never felt like it was trying to exoticize Ozu from what I've read from it. Uh, well, but I don't know. David Bordwell, who does the commentary on An Autumn Afternoon and is probably one of the preeminent Ozu scholars, wrote a book in the late '80s uh, called The Poetics of Cinema, and it's. The second half of the book is basically a plot summary and an analysis of each individual film. And the first half mm-hmm. of the book is about a 180 pages of him just like listing out all of like the Western like analyses of Ozu and shredding them for being idiotic <laughs> uh, in a very polite way where like they might not even know they're being criticized. Um, but he, it's exhaustive and like really hard to read because it's basically him saying like, no, like you saying like that, like something is like transcendental and Zen makes no sense because if that were the case, there would be a lot of other Japanese filmmakers doing the same thing. Uh, or like, or him saying like, you're saying that no one can understand this unless you have Little Orphan Annie's secret decoder ring, which you happen to have. Uh, but, you know, literally like a billion people a year in Japan see movies, you know, and they're all able to understand Ozu. Uh, like, what's the, you know, uh, yeah. yeah, like just basically like just taking them apart. And like the conclusion is kind of like, you know, look at this. Ozu made films. Anyone can understand them. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, and that's really the the sort of like really biggest point about the um that documentary, well, document that 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 film essay that was attached to this was just like it it proposed a world in which like Ozu was so deeply like 
it, it, I don't know, like mist. We talked about the mysticism, but it's like, oh, like he's he's evolved to some higher plane of filmmaking. They where, u- like, they literally use the word Satori. Yeah, like, exactly. Which is, and, and like, yeah, how it is applicable in this situation <laughs> baffled yeah. me. I I watched yeah. that sentence of that film like seven <laughs> times. Try, like, first of all, just trying to piece together the sentence because the word is just used sort of apropos of nothing. Uh, right. And then I'm like, how, how, wh- how would that connect to what he's doing here? And like, you, what you have to do in order to reach that perspective is to take sort of Ozu's sort of like general, somewhat like, it has a sort of pseudo traditional Japanese performing arts sort of vibe to the performance styles. Um, there's a kind of no theater sort of feel to it. It's not like it's not intense. Like it doesn't have like all the trappings of no theater or anything like that. And it's not nearly like that deep down. It's not like it's not that far down. You know what I mean? It's just there a little bit. It's got a bit of the feel of it. Uh, some of the silent points and stuff like that feel that way. And, and character motions feel a little bit similar. Uh, and you just have to ride that horse all the way into the ground to get to the point where you're like, well, Ozu's films are really a meditation on our uh, the fundamental nature of human being, and 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 they're, they they transcend that into sort of a, a almost Buddha esque perspective on human existence. It's like I don't. That seems a bit much. Yeah, <laughs> frankly, I and I also love. Well, go ahead, Adam. Oh, uh, I was just going to say, like a lot of uh, a lot of like this stuff that Western critics have come up with have, has come out of the fact that they just ignore everything that's going on in terms of like the context of what Ozu's right. films are, yeah, and right. and where they're coming from. He, I mean, Ozu was born in the early 1900s at the yep. very end of the Meiji Restoration. Uh, and, you know, then grew up in that period of like the 1910s and 20s when Japan was rapidly modernizing and, you know, literally salarymen were like something that was brand new for men in their 20s, right? When Ozu became in his 20s. Well, and, and keep in mind we're like during, and that's, that's even sort of like, even then, like the, the early the early Meiji period where Ozu would have been a young man you get the depression but also even something like salarymen is still not that common mostly Japan is still an industrializing nation so most mm-hmm. people are factory workers uh, right most people are are Japan is rapidly on on a path that leads sort of only one way which is sort of rapid imperialization and and colonization like the whole very quickly the modernization effort becomes a we it, it becomes a sort of we we have to become the standout asian power and, right. and a lot of that gets done and like ozu clearly had feelings about that but yeah it's yeah he did and you know basically he entered shochiko studios in the early 1920s right after it had gotten established uh, and he worked his way up to director after four or five years uh and then just kept directing from like the late 1928 you know late 1920s all the way through you know until his death and he worked in basically the same genre his whole time his first film would have been a jedi geki film 
Uh, but that yeah. film is lost, and he actually didn't finish it because he was called out, you know, to his military service when he still had like two or three weeks left to film on it. Um, and so someone else finished it. When he came back to Shochiku, they had decided, you know, we'll let the other studios like Toho, like, you know, take care of the Jada Hidegeki films. And uh, we're going to focus on, you know, the middle class films and ba- and salaryman stories and nonsensu comedies. Uh, and so Ozu, they had dissolved the unit that he was assigned to. And so he basically was reassigned to doing middle class movies. And he just, you know, stayed in that like zone of like, I'm making this kind of movie, I'm making either, you know, a comedy or like a salaryman drama, uh, or I'm going to make like what they shifted to in the sound film era, because he made a ton of like silent comedies. Uh, that was probably the majority of the silent movies he made. Um, but when he shifted to sound, like Shochiku had an edict, like we want to move more to doing uh, movies that focus on upper middle class women because that is our primary audience. They go to the movies more than anyone else. Uh, So urban, upper-middle-class women, that's going to be our focus. And that was the the intended audience for most of Ozu's career from that point on, from what did the lady forget on through an autumn afternoon. And to a certain extent, to my eye, like reading some of these like mystified reactions in the West to Ozu, uh, a lot of it is because like he was making women's pictures that dealt with women's issues and all of these male critics like literally can't wrap their head around that a movie might not be about the men. It might be about women or what women want. And, and I find it like amazing that they're like, it's, it's transcendental. No one's ever done anything like it before. Well, it's like, there's a thousand Hollywood movies that are female melodramas like by George Cukor and so many other like Hollywood stable directors that were doing the same thing in Hollywood. And there's a lot of great movies like that too. Uh, But by taking Ozu completely out of the context of, you know, I'm making movies for upper middle-class women that live in urban Japan uh, that focus on what their issues are and the issues that are really relevant to their lives. Uh, taking away all of that context and focusing just on literally anything else, like coming up with wild interpretive theories. It's amazing the amount of erasure in that kind of like embedded misogyny that you see everywhere. Right. And that, that embedded erasure is interesting then to one of the final questions that, uh, that gets asked in that featurette, the hosts or, or off screen voice, um, asks uh, uh, writer. Uh, oh goodness, what's his name? It's uh, anyway. The other guy they talk to is uh, is an author who I can picture because he's got very silly large hair and a goatee. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, um, but I can't think of his name offhand. I can't find it. Uh, but they uh, Perrick is his last name, and they ask Perrick uh, if he thinks that the film was so affecting because it's typically Japanese in a way that is unfamiliar because the other Japanese films the French had seen were not typically Japanese. Which is a, okay, before we go into what he says, what a, what yeah. a wild-ass question to ask to some <laughs> French, direct, like, French director. It's like, where, where would you be pulling all this information from? Like, from what point would you be deriving a perspective on what is or is not typically Japanese with regards to both life and film 
based solely on the films that have been premiered in France. It's yeah, fucking I mean, I wild have to, to ass- be, honestly speaking. I have to assume it's in part at least an idea that, say, uh, the Kurosawa is not typically Japanese. Which is a really unfair thing that Western film does to... <laughs> And, and so does Japanese film, but like Japanese film critics will often do that in an effort sort of to, I would argue, kind of sort of devalue Kurosawa by making him seem other rather than uh, internal to Japan. You know what I mean? Like to make his criticisms and commentary of Japan seem like they're coming from the outside rather than from inside the house. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Is a thing that Japanese cinema critics have done for a long time to avoid dealing with Kurosawa as an actual innate part of Japanese society. Like there's, it's impossible for Kurosawa to not be making films as a Japanese man being a Japanese man. You know what I mean? But Japanese films critics like to do that. And Western film critics seem to have picked up that ball and run with it to be like, Oh, Kurosawa's films are not Japanese. And it's like, what are you saying? That doesn't make any sense. Uh, and Sorry, there's a digression, but yeah. Well, and the flip side of that coin is this, uh, there's a lot of Western critics that immediately jump to the idea that like Ozu is the most Japanese, which right, is funny which is, because right. from like the early 1930s, because he had such an idiosyncratic style, uh, a lot of people were like, boy, Ozu is just a, not a very Japanese director. Like, you know, we have all this national stuff about making, you know, really, you know, focus on Japanese-ness and our art and everything. And Ozu doesn't do that. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> um, I've, you know, it's, and then by the Western, by Westerners, like who picked up on his idiosyncratic style, they said, ah, he's the most Japanese because like right. his style is different than other Japanese directors, which makes no sense right. logically, but. <laughs> right. And I right. think, I right. think that that's sort of like that. We, I think what happens is to a certain extent is, Ozu being focusing on sort of daily life sort of drama and then combining that with it still having some so his yeah that idiosyncratic style I think lends itself to people saying to themselves ah this is v-, like in the if you're already sort of orientalizing various Asian cultures and especially Japanese culture it's very easy to say well this very idiosyncratic style is is very Japanese you know what I mean because yeah, it feels right. foreign to me it must be it must be just how mm-hmm. Japanese people are and I'm like and 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 it's like it's this weird circum circular logic that leads you to be like, oh, this guy who's doing pretty like unique stuff must be super normal for like those people we don't understand. <laughs> it's a really right, wild right. circle to go. Like it's a it's a real wild road to drive down, but people yeah. did it. Yep. Yeah. And still do it. Uh. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> uh. And. Uh, Peric's response to that question is, uh, I don't take the film as an image of Japan. I took it as an image created by a filmmaker. Um, okay. Which is interesting, too, because they, they... Earlier, they ask uh, each of them if it's a realistic film, and they both kind of say out of hand that no. Um, and I think I think in that instance, they're, they're dealing on a, a realism versus transcendentalism sliding scale more than more than whether or not this film is a realistic depiction of of life uh because it's obviously a fairly realistic well we're gonna get into that in a minute because (laughs) this movie sent me on a spiral of research for like several hours so yeah we'll talk about that in a minute but yeah 
I mean, he, they're definitely yeah, but the way, a comparison between that and and yeah, some of the more sort of like surreal and out there films that would be available to them. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, uh, where Peric where Peric goes with that is to to talk about this film as uh, some sort of wholly made creation of Ozu, as if it were completely separated from any reality of Japan. Um, which again, I think gets into what Adam's already spoken to of, right. of a a disconnect of the from the upper class female drama um, that this is. Oh, sort of meant to be as his genre and but. there is a, a big class component that's very like right. subdued right. in an autumn afternoon which is you know uh hirayama is you know at the start of the movie he just is like i've never thought about it like with regard to like michiko getting married which to my mind after having watched all these ozu movies is kind of him saying i don't believe in it uh in a polite right. in a polite way a way of deflecting um, because Ozu's films that are all about marriage tend to fall into two categories. It, tragedies, which is when the woman is forced into an arranged marriage, uh, and comedies, when the woman gets to choose a love marriage, usually, or gets the arranged marriage that she wants because she, like, you know, uh, becomes, an, becomes right. an act, yeah, yeah. she becomes an active participant in the marriage game. Um, right. and so the autumn afternoon is kind of both which is quite interesting. Um, but, you know, you see throughout all of his, you know, marriage films, like there are men who are, are like, I, you know, Equinox Flowers may be my favorite of the marriage films. Uh, and the male lead of that movie is the president of a company and he opens it at a reception for one of his underlings, the uh, daughters, their wedding. And he says, ah, they tell me this is a love match. That's great. I had an arranged marriage. I hated it. It's arranged marriages are stupid. Good for you guys. You guys are awesome. And then his daughter uh, wants to get married to the person that she loves. And he's like, you are not getting married to the person I love. I am going to stop that. You are going to do an arranged marriage to a man of my choosing. Uh, and the whole rest of the movie is all of the women in the film, as well as some of his best friends, collaborating to outmaneuver him in the marriage game right. <laughs> uh, so that she gets what she wants. And he is forced to confront his hypocrisy over and over again and eventually Excellent. accept their worldview. It's amazing. It's like... It's so good. Uh, and so you see like flashes of that. And that's where I initially thought this was going when I was watching it again, because I didn't really remember much about this movie um, from my first viewing 15 years ago. And yeah. uh, so Hirayama starting off saying like, oh, you know, yeah, I've not thought about it. It's like him saying like, I don't really believe in it. And he's forced to then decide okay, I'm going to have to do something because he sees his teacher who lives with, you know, his daughter that he never married off and they're in dire straits. But, and I think this is the subtle class part of this, uh, you know, and again, Ozu focuses on upper middle class things. Um, you know, they're in dire straits because they're poor, not because right, she wasn't right. married. Yeah, the, uh, the and, yeah, yeah. And that means it's almost impossible for his daughter to wind up in kind of a same scenario which all of the people watching this at the time probably would have known and recognized right but yeah. but he, he's kind of blind to it he's just like oh no things could turn out badly i need to set the wheels in motion but to his credit he doesn't he rejects the arranged marriage from Kawhi, uh 
and immediately tries to arrange a marriage with the person he knows that Michiko is interested in romantically. And that's like Mm -hmm. a a huge progressive step for a lot of like the patriarchs in Ozu's films to see that he's like focusing on what she wants first. Um, But it's just, it's, it's fascinating all the little layers and levels of it and everything. Cause uh, you know, it's uh, uh, that, that whole class component, but then he's blind to it, but then he leverages it to actually start, what he knows is the socially like acceptable thing that he should be doing. Um, it's, it's very complex. And I think, you know, even yeah, as someone that doesn't know all that much about 1960s Japan, like that's my interpretation, but I could be wildly off base. Well, it's an interesting thing to think about because I, I ran, I went, I ran through a lot of different cycles while watching this movie. This movie was a, was a trip for me just because, um, like I never can fully get a lock on Ozu and his. Pers- he seems to, in some ways, long for the s- sort of a more traditional Japan. Like when you watch some of his movies, they do have a a sort of feeling of longing for like the way things used to be. But then, as you point out, there are plenty of his stories where, and even this one included, like when you talk about what the f- the father is trying to arrange, you know, a a sort of love match sort of leans towards a more progressive view of the way Japan should be. And it's, I have found it really difficult to get a lock on what on Ozu's actual opinion of the way sort of society should function. Um, Because in this one, at the same time, we do get a, finally we just get an arranged marriage that all sort of just kind of quote unquote works out. You know what I mean? Oh, the Mm -hmm. one that was the other one was, really a good one and and it they turned out great and it seems like it's going to be fine it's sort of is is a weird sort of final result i i actually struggled with the ending of this film a lot because it the movie does take a few sort of like zigzags where it's like oh well no that love marriage isn't going to work out so now you're going to end up in this other one and she's unhappy about it but then we sort of just almost sort of just end the film <laughs> you know like oh okay it all worked out it's fine um it's a little bit hard to get a lock on it and and it makes me wonder what did Ozu think was the sort of ideal scenario and it and it's very hard to get a lock on that uh especially like I was doing some research and like 1965 is the year that our prearranged marriages and love marriages met in the middle 50/50 in Japan um so Ozu's right on they it was like 48 48- Right in there. What? Yeah. Uh, That's amazing to hear because like that, that like line traced from like late spring through an autumn afternoon, which are the series of all the marriage movies is uh, he is slowly pointing everything towards like, you know, more love marriages, more love marriages, fewer arranged marriages. Like let's criticize the arranged marriages, but we'll also show they sometimes are okay. Yeah, but sometimes they work out. Yeah. But we'll also show sometimes love marriages are like, there's problems with that too. Like he, he does both sides, but he's heading in the same exact direction that society is heading based on that statistic. You said he's right in the wheelhouse of like standard, like what's going on in society it sounds like right sounds like uh and in terms of his nostalgia um you know i w- would say a lot of that has to do with you know the transitions that society was going through when he was growing up where you know they 
you know, with the end of the Meiji Restoration and then like the, oh, I get them mixed up. Is the Heian right before Meiji or is that right after? The... Uh, Heian's much earlier. Like it would okay. be like uh, Heisei is what we were in right before now. And like before that, it would be Showa. It, like Showa. Ozu that's what is I was primarily a Showa director. Like, yeah. Uh, as um, most directors of his era, you know, that time period would yeah. be because that's when film sort of came out. Right. Um, so, yeah, he like going through those transitions, like there was, you know, so much liberalization happening, you know, from like the 1890s through the 1920s that came to a stop with the militarism of the war in 1931 and everything uh, and the national growing nationalism. And um, and, you know, I would say he's got a lot of nostalgia for like the broken promises of the Meiji restoration. Like we never got the liberalized society. We all thought we were going to get when we were students and, but, and he's also really frustrated that he lives in like a broken world that the militarists destroyed. And that Japan is the Japan that he like struggles with is in conflict with those two things. Like he, you know, you see in a lot of his films, like, you know, he'll say th- like characters will say things like in this film where it's like, ah, eh, I don't think we you should have won the war. Like, I don't I don't like being bullied by the militarists. Right. There's a bunch of and Equinox Flower, the president of the company, the main character says, I hated the war era. All those idiots marching in the street. And like he just goes off for a minute on it. Right. Uh, and, you know, I think like that tension is really evident and it's also hard to grapple with like from a western perspective for me at least because like you know most of uh the west isn't really interested in what japan thinks of itself they're just like oh like you know like you know japan is great now because like you know we fixed it with like the perfect constitution we gave them and you know like they're they're just being western now like and so there's a lot of uh uh difficulty in in trying to you know make any sweeping generalization or statement about like i think it's this or that simply because you know you don't know um and it's almost unrelated but it's kind of like you know persistent through all of of ozu's is that you know his idiosyncratic style with the way he you know, frames things and like, you know, cuts from like kind of a straight on shot of someone speaking to a straight on shot of someone speaking. It's just not over the shoulder usually. Um, you know, those those are graphic match cuts. And one of the things that that does is like to make it a graphic match cut, you have to have the person be basically the same size on the screen. And what that means is Ozu has to position the camera using the same lens uh, you know, two women and men talking to each other, or women and women talking to each other, so that they are exactly the same size in the screen when they're talking to each other. And everywhere else in the world, you see, you know, women are always smaller on camera because they're smaller in real life. Uh, and I think one of those, like, really interesting things about Ozu is it's almost a, the word you would use now for it is he's not a heteronormative filmmaker because he's not portraying everything through like the traditional typical, like, you know, male gaze of how everything is situated. Like it's, it's a little bit, you know, he's very, very realist, but by like doing it in these particular ways, it's a little bit experimental or 
uh, formalist, I guess you would almost, and, but it's portraying, you know, uh, it's, it particularly, it portrays women on a more equal level visually Mm -hmm. than just about anything else because he's choosing to build it out this way within his style. And I think there's something very, very interesting in that. But again, I don't want to project into it, especially with interpretations that would be very modern for the 2020s. But, you know, when David Bordwell wrote his book in the late 80s, like there's literally like heteronormative film theory and queer film theory were like almost non-existent. Uh, and you wouldn't, you know, have any way to like even like deal with that. And it's it's interesting that his films are so vibrant that you can keep going back to them and say like, hmm, what if you like look at it through this lens? So, Right, yeah. And, right. and you know, it's worth noting like not to be sort of, I don't want to, overstate things about Ozu because I don't know much about his personal life and there's not a lot I, I there's not just a ton of information available um, but it's worth noting that he never got married and that he lived uh, he lived with and cared for his mother until she passed away these are not no, these are not what would be considered air quotes normal behaviors for Japanese men at that time mm-hmm. um, so it's it's worth noting that Ozu himself had a life that was different than what would be expected from him like especially yeah. among japanese male directors well male i say male directors as though mid like showa era directors never mind but never mind. um yeah it's not exactly a wide open field for women at the time but like he's not um he's he's unusual by their standards and, right and that's mm-hmm. and that's not not to make any claims about any beyond that but it's just something that's worth noting that is in the topic you just brought mm-hmm. up he has he doesn't represent the sort of standard by the books male japanese director um yeah. in the in the show era uh so i think yeah i that may, those yeah. things may be related is all i'm saying yeah um, i i agree i mean yeah. you know watchy like there's a lot of koi commentary that's that constantly kind of hints that like oh ozu was gay but you know, that's not something that we know, and that's and there's no personal to him, really, and yeah. it's it's not enormously relevant to understanding his films. Like you know, he right. could be gay, he could have been a trans egg, you know, where he like you know never even realized or knew he was trans. Like he could have been asexual or pansexual. We no one really knows or heterosexual, uh, and just but you know, there's. No way to know, and when you like try to throw those interpretive things on top of it, it it's uh, un, it's unfair in a, in a big no, way. No, and it doesn't and, get you anywhere. But and you know, I think part of it is uh, you know, there's rumors that he was expelled from middle school for writing a love letter to another boy, um, and you know, some of the the well. Donald Ritchie as, uh, you know, openly gay man and famous film critic like Ozu was his favorite director. And so there's a sense in that for me that like part of like uh, his promotion of Ozu in a way adds to that kind of like coy, like, oh, he's this is like, you know, people, you know, promoting Douglas Sirk and Fassbender because like, you know, like, mm-hmm. oh, as a gay man you know, I feel a resonance with, you know, this man with Ozu. So therefore he must be gay. 
And there's a lot of problems with that and with right. that that era of gay men and how they approached people that they really wished were gay, <laughs> but maybe right. were not. Right. Or, or at but least were not reciprocal. <laughs> right. But what's what is worth noting is that even in his personal life, Ozu was was walking a road that was his sort of own unique road that was not yes, common at yes, the time. Which, exactly, which helps you to kind exactly. of understand his films and his life sort of reflecting each other in the sense that he is willing to just do something that matches what he wants to do rather than sort of what the expectations would be for somebody, mm-hmm. like a director or as a person. Um, yeah. Which is uh, interesting. Um, other, yeah, so I mean, the only thing I would say is that going back to what the that uh, sort of documentary, I, I hesitate to say documentary because whatever that was, it was not a documentary. <laughs> TV uh, and show it also it, it goes into these weird sort of like diatribes on like Japanese art and it's like, and how it's like the heart of Zen. And I'm like, again, like, first of all, like, there's so many problems here. Like, yes, Japanese traditional art forms do have a lot of like relationship to Zen, but that's mostly because most Japanese traditional art forms were developed during the, uh, Edo era, which was dominated by samurai and their expendable income, influencing art, and which meant that and samurai were primarily the primarily primary sort of religion or spiritual outlet of samurai was Zen Buddhism, but that doesn't represent standard Japanese society really in any meaningful way going forward or backwards. It just is a sort of part of the artistic style, and that's just sort of my interpretation based on what I've read. Mm-hmm. Um, but like it, that that video is just wild it's like getting into like oh ozu's <laughs> films are like are really just a hundred percent zen and i'm like boy you guys just really like th- what it reminds me of is that like those eras in american literature where like ah oh, we've written a bunch of books called things like the zen of motorcycle maintenance and stuff and it's like, <laughs> woof boys like let's cool it okay like yeah we don't need to talk about zen every time we talk about japan these are not the same thing um it's it felt to me like they knew the word zen haiku and no and just uh just those were their three contact points so they had to relate to those three contact points in talking about japan no matter what and they just show (laughs) all this like these sort of like clips of like people doing like traditional japanese archery and all this and of course japanese traditional archery is related to like the art of war in japan which is like again a samurai thing it's yeah there's a lot of that kind of stuff but it doesn't really reflect the modern normal japanese person's life you know what I mean? Like right. the normal mm-hmm. Japanese person is not walking around trying to practice Zen every day. In fact, za- Zen and Zazen as sort of like spiritual outlets in Japan are relatively unpopular. They're not not popular. They're just like way down on the rung of things that people actually daily practice. Um, most, you know, we can get we don't want to spend too much time on Japanese religion, but like. The idea that every Japanese person is just wandering around figuring out how how Zen they can be is just this very weird interpretation. And it's worth noting that that documentary also features at a time when during the economic booms in Japan where every Western nation was freaking out about Japan. And so there's these statements about Japan being this sort of monolithic monster of a country that's coming (laughs) – Kind of, it's, I, it's definitely that has that built freeways. <laughs> yeah, like, no, it's, like, it's got this like fear mongering to it. It uh, shows in a lot of films, a lot of documentaries made about Japan in the in this period in America too, and and again does a thing that I that I personally just 
have a lot of distaste for. Most modern ja- scholars about Japan do is representing, J- representing Japan as a monolithic society, as though it's one unified front, as though it has no cultural uh, sort of subtlety inside of it. Like it's like uh, the, the, my favorite sort of analogy is like saying to somebody like, "Oh, my students will sometimes like, ah, oh, Americans they love guns." Uh, and like that's the same sort of essentialism right where it's like well you're you're not there's no subtlety to that they're like yeah it, mm-hmm. it's a, it presents a world where every american just got like 12 guns in his in his back <laughs> like just like, he's whole he's got two on the hip and there's one in the car and there's one on his back and and You've been hanging out with my family. Work out for that. We have one point one two guns apiece. Right, right. I have have that point two gun inside of my pocket. Um, Yeah, but like Uh. the idea is like there's a sort of desire, especially during the time when Japan is a sort of rising power that the West fears to like paint it as this just cultural monolith, where like ah every Japanese person is this thing, and that whole Zen reading is definitely a part of that, right? Uh, right. I right. find very upsetting. But, and um, interesting. it's totally right. off base in another way, which is like the whole like, you know, uh, Zen reading and like the various like high art aspects of, uh, you know, like Japanese literature of, of like the time where it's like, you know, the starting in like the 1920s and definitely through the 60s like you know like the high works of literature that you know might get praised by like intellectuals you know would print 5000 copies of a book and like those books might then get like translated into french and they'd be like ah oh, we really understand japan now uh meantime you know because <laughs> we read too much mishima yeah <laughs> right meantime like you know starting in the 1920s manga and all of the popular literature were p- printing a hundred million like copies a year and like there was a massive explosion in literacy and you know a lot of it was like you know serialized like melodrama and comedy uh yeah, but it wasn't yeah. high art and all of that gets uh completely ignored by the west because they're like oh you know our elite aristocrats are going to talk to your elite aristocrats and they'll clearly get a good, you know, sense of the totality of Japan from that exchange. Right, uh, right, yeah. But Ozu is literally right in the middle of all of that of like, you know, Oh, I'm, he's making the film equivalent of like, you know, melodrama, you know, and comedy, you know, novels and manga, like you know, where it's like kind of the same thing, another installment from a different, you know, you know, a uh, slightly different perspective this time. Of, right, right, uh, yeah. Like, you know, it's, it's what Ozu's making is popular film. It's, you know, it, it's, um, it's interesting that like TV was becoming so much bigger in the sixties. Uh, and you even see like the, the Zatoichi film series eventually like kind of like trails off and transitions fully to TV uh, not long after this, uh, I think in the early seventies, if Ozu had lived, I think he would have stopped making films and he would have started making serialized melodramas on TV yeah. for the rest of his career. It would have taken career. a while to convince him to move over, but I think so too. Eventually, well, if he had especially survived to his <laughs> 80s or 90s, mm-hmm. damn straight he would have been doing uh, TV yeah. dramas. Especially uh, Japan, there's a there's a big market for, especially like what would be called soap operas in the West, but they tend to be, they're not exactly geared exactly the same way because they're mm-hmm. also like, wide we've talked about like it's not uncommon for teachers to show like sort of more um a lot of them do tend to be historical dramas at the same time 
Um, but like those kind of dramas are really, really popular here and still are. Uh, and it's not uncommon for like teachers to show them in school and stuff like that even. So like it would be really believable that eventually he would get hired by like NHK or somebody to make a, mm-hmm. like, Oh, we want you to tell, especially as he got older, the chances that he wouldn't be able to like mentally sort of leave the sixties and s- those periods might, might have been, you know, the chances that like somebody like NHK would be like, could you make a drama about the like mid show era for us, please? And they, you know, it would be like a perfect fit. It, it's very <laughs> right. believable. Yeah. It's, and yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and you know, his technique actually would translate really well to television as well because you know literally volumes have been written on like Ozu's technique and my perspective is you know having worked on film sets and worked in an editing room uh is that you know basically everything Ozu's doing is trying to take you know risk and uncertainty out of the filmmaking process in a way because you know if you're working on a set like, you know, lighting a set for, you know, you're going to shoot it takes a day and a half, maybe two days uh, to get all of the light exactly right. Uh, and then when you're shooting, you know, once you like change a camera setup, you know, you have to stop down for at least 45 minutes to tweak the lights. And Ozu used the same camera setups and the same kind of sets and the same lens over and over and over again throughout his career. And to my mind, that sounds like someone who's frustrated with the delays and has come up with a system that he knows will let him, you know, make films relatively quickly and he won't have to throw away too much footage because it doesn't work. I mean, that's the other thing about like his systematized idiosyncratic style. Like, you know, David Bordwell explains it very well in terms of how he can cut you know, 90 degrees or 180 degrees or 135 degrees. He doesn't have to stay on the Hollywood side of the line. And part of that's the graphic matching. And part of that is because like he very quickly realized like, uh, you know, if I do shoot head on and then I cut 90 degrees, but there's an action that kind of reveals where someone's walking into the 90 degree shot, it will work. Even if it violates the 180 degree rule, it's going to work. And if I then do a reverse of that 180 degrees, it will still work because, you know, when you're on like those particular axes, like it will make sense to people and it will make sense to people if you also have the graphic matches. And if you're also having sets that allow you to design the set so that there's uh, parallels in the background images as well. So like, you know, okay, he might cut 90 degrees, but there's still a vertical line of a wall, you know, about, you know, 10% into the frame on the left side in the first shot and the second shot. And when you cut 90 degrees, which your eye would normally like jump at that and you would feel the cut. But if you have created a frame that's very, very similar, your eye and your brain will just bridge it and make it feel very smooth. So Ozu understood editing and how, you know, like set design and, you know, lighting design and all of those things can be integrated. And like, from my perspective, yes, everything he does is very idiosyncratic. But, you know, if he knew exactly how he was going to do it, he could work very quickly. And that means it would work in television. <laughs> right. right. So, right. yeah. Yeah. I, I will say I, I don't I don't watch every one of these dramas that comes out. 
uh, here, the, these sort of modern dramas. But I, I'll tell you that I believe that people in Japanese television making these like dramas that they have to like pop, like pump out pretty much weekly. I mean, they're not made weekly, you know, obviously, mm-hmm. but like uh, they definitely do adopt some elements of Ozu style. style. Like uh, there a lot of fixed cameras that like do the, the, like when you watch them, there's a lot of feeling where you'll be like, Oh, we've, this is the spot we picked for this shot and doing any sort of movement of it would make, would make it more complicated but also like just from a you know so there's a practical perspective but also stylistically there's definitely a sort of you can see i think if you watch japanese television drama not like not like the suspense dramas these sort of like slice of life dramas that are quite popular there's definitely a he definitely had an influence on the way those tv shows are made uh they do more panning than he would because he does none mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And they do more zoom than he would because, again, he does none. But, like, oftentimes, other than a few, like, really, like, blockbuster shots that they'll use, especially for, like, PR images, it'll be, like, just this is a steady shot on this character and this is a steady mm-hmm. shot. Like, we've got this room. We've got all the characters we need in this room properly framed. Go. Yeah. Like, and and they're more dynamic in the sense that Ozu prefers a very specific spot in the room. Uh Whereas these will sometimes be up in the corner of the room or something, but like they they feel very uh, similar. I I I, mm-hmm. I I was like actually looking for one, uh, but the the most recent one is a little bit less that way. But um, I've watched a few of these with my family, and they're they there's a feel to them where you're like, oh, like whether it's just because you're all coming at it from the same angle of like we do not have time to spend on moving the camera around a lot or if it's just like oh well we know a, we you know ozu is influential within japan so you could see somebody saying like well what's a good way to shoot a melodrama about family life mm-hmm. kind of thing it, it really i think it there's a lot of stylistic elements that have been carried forward like movie movies i don't see this very much like mm-hmm. his style is not popular from what i've seen in japanese movies but like going forward that much but like on tv i think it it seems to me that it's uh had a big impact so well and it wouldn't his style wouldn't work in widescreen either which is why he's still making a four by three film in 1962 when i don't know probably 95 percent of japanese film was in scope at that point because you know the yeah they loved widescreen and made everything in widescreen Right, right um and uh uh, because like when you're in like a wider frame, like the proportions go all wrong, which is another reason why I think he would have transitioned to TV. If he wasn't allowed to keep making Academy ratio films, I think he would have refused to work in widescreen because all of his tricks don't really apply because like there's just there's just too much space on the side of the frames. And there's, you know, uh, there's a lot of like uh, proportional aspects to like the way people are sized within the frame relative to the rest of the frame and everything that just are very 
very elegant and systematized and it all goes out the window with widescreen. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you can kind of Im- imagine it would either require a radical readjustment of the, his style or, mm-hmm. okay, I'm just done with this. Uh, yeah. And uh, he, he does he does move his camera throughout his career. I don't know that there's any in an autumn afternoon, but what he doesn't do is pans and tilts right. or zooms. He does tracking shots. And he does tracking shots so that the person that he is tracking with the camera stays in the same place in the frame, you know, while they're tracking. So if it's two people walking outside, the camera tracks at the exact speed they're walking. So they always stay in the same place in the frame. They don't gain on the camera or the camera doesn't gain on them, which is the terms we usually use when we're describing tracking shots. Uh, It's exactly the same speed. Uh, so again, it's, it's compositionally to the composition of the frame is like the centered aspect of what's like motivating the camera move and controlling the, like the directives of that camera move. Um, but you know, a lot of people say he never moves the camera. He does. He just does it within a very, very, very tight constraint. That's pretty ridiculous. So, (laughs) right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, 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 it's almost, I think probably honestly, like sort of on a sort of a layman sort of perspective and sort of at the sort of heart of the way we think about things, when you track a a character like that, it no longer feels mentally like sort of a Uh camera move because you're like, oh, well, this is the thing that's important and it's not actually moving relative to our vision. You know Uh what I mean? Like it's, it's, if, if you were to like think about it, it's like, oh, it's almost as though the character's running in place because like Mm -hmm. it's it perfectly in time with the camera. Like, uh, so it's it's hard to we don't even mentally I think a lot of people process those as camera moves you know what I mean they yeah they don't <laughs> so right. Um, right. so other things that we like going back to the documentary one of the things that you you brought up is talking about the whether or not this is a film about real Japanese life they brought it up in that documentary and and mm-hmm. we talked about whether or not they're just talking about trans you know sort of transcendentalism or something like that versus uh, versus reality or something like that. Um, but it's interesting because I, I, this did lead me to think about things a little bit. And we talked about uh, how this is a transition of sort of merit of the style of marriage in Japan and stuff like that, and whether or not this is realistic. And, and it really got interesting. I think from just what the research I've done is it's sort of realistic, but it's also somewhat idyllic, right? Like, it's it's portraying, like a lot of melodramas mm-hmm. will, a, a world that is where things are real, but they're also um, sort of a little bit too too nice, too good, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, the, right. It, it, is, it is somewhat, fan, it's not, I'm trying to think like what the word would be, but it's, it's a little bit, um, that's a word I'm trying like it's it's a real world like I mean it it reflects yeah. the way people experience life but it's still too clean it's clean. too good yeah. it, it like everything works out in this movie there's mm-hmm. there's a lot in this movie that you know and Adam touched on this earlier the sort of third way that things you know with the marriage in particular it's it's the arranged marriage, but also maybe it's the happy marriage, and they didn't go directly to the arranged marriage. They, they, mm-hmm. they went through that other path. There's a lot in this movie that has one foot in the past and one foot in a future 
and it's you know forging a path between those like even even early with the talk you know the the one friend says oh i'm not i'm not coming out to dinner tonight i'm going to the baseball game <laughs> right and he doesn't go to the baseball game Such he goes a good to dinner joke. and instead they've got the baseball game on tv right, right? But in another and room that he can't see. In so. another room, but he's but he's hearing everybody cheer out right, there and right. keeps asking the waitress about it, and uh, and there's you know uh, the the other uh, the other friend is is even so uh, you know one foot in the past, one foot in the future because he's got the the young wife who is also tearing him away from from dinner that night, mm-hmm. uh, and the. Uh, the former underling in the military that he runs into at the at the other bar who is at first you know talking about all the great the good old days and then and then uh our our, our dad says uh, i think it's a a good thing that we lost the war and immediately the other guy like uh switch turns and he's he's making fun of the military song within mm-hmm. a couple of minutes right too right, right. Yeah. so it's it's all this you know I think, you know, what Adam described as as Ozu's past of this this longing for he has a nostalgia for something that maybe never actually came to fruition, mm-hmm. right? And he recognizes why it didn't, and be that militarism or be that American influence, he does reject those, yeah. right? Both internally in Japan and external American influence, he rejects both of those, right? So it's. Mm-hmm. It's you know we talked a few weeks ago about whether or not Tati was reactionary, and I think we could have a similar conversation here. That I, that's, I, that, I that I sits similarly with a, I'm not entirely sure, right? Yeah. Right, uh, and, and that's the issue, right? Is that like it's worth noting that like yeah, as we talked about earlier, um, Ozu would have been in his 20s when essentially a lot of the sort of quote unquote I don't want to say like. Japan's military, like, militarization, but it, things got, as far as I can tell, like, this is not my, my favorite period of study, but, like, got pretty hardcore when he would have been in his mid-20s. Mm-hmm. Uh, early 20s, actually. Let's see, he was born in 1903. Yeah, so, like, early 20s, things would have gotten progressively and progressively less, less for lack of a better word, liberal um, mm-hmm. uh, pretty quickly. Uh, and it's really easy to see where, like, maybe when, as you pointed out, when he was younger, maybe he was told things about the way society was going to function from now on that were not real, right? Like, the idea that, like, oh, you're going to have a say in the way the society functions and the government and, and, Mm -hmm. and, and bear in mind that, like, Meiji Restoration Japan was, said a lot of those kind of things in much the way that, the United States and other countries said those kind of things, and they were never really true, uh, right? With regards to who got to participate and how, like uh, I read a really interesting book not that long ago talking about how uh, it's hard to understand the major restoration as a proper like bourgeoisie revolution because uh, most of the farming and working class was still essentially bound by the feudal system because mm-hmm. instead of the feudal system, they just levied major taxes against them and and they were land was redistributed and immediately hyper taxed to the point where everybody lost their ability to actually own their land and was essentially indebted and had to work the same farm that they worked 
when they were under the feudal system. So nothing really changed for a majority of people except for the burgeoning, the, the relatively small burgeoning middle class, which would mm-hmm. have been sort of the society. But like, it's it's hard. It's easy to imagine that the rhetoric at the time still told people like Ozu, yeah, you're going to have a say in this society. You're going to be an active member in a society that's make where you help to make the choices and 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 society will bend to the needs of the people could still be probably what he heard growing up and then Mm -hmm. like instead he got shipped off to a war you know what i mean like right uh, those things don't that that probably that was not necessarily at first necessarily widely supported and and it, it it's easy to see how he could get pretty disillusioned with with the japanese and then go through the war and then come out the other end and things are still bad right like Post-war mm-hmm. Japan, things are real bad. Uh, so, like, how that could really have an effect on a person's sort of view of society, right? Uh, right. And the yeah. Americans who come in are not making things better, right? Like, that's the thing, right? Is like we see that in other Ozu films, are like, well, this stuff that they're bringing in and trying to the way they're trying to change Japanese society is also not necessarily making it better, right? Uh, yeah. Well, and even. You know, the movie that kicked this off late spring is a movie made under the occupation. Right. Uh, yeah. Meaning you know, like the script went through occupation censors and approvals and they very much wanted a movie about a liberated woman now that women have the right to vote and everything. And, you know, in a way, this Ozu made a variation on his propaganda film, There Was a Father, uh, where the military, like, you know, wanted a movie that was about you know, a father sacrificing, you know, uh, the family, because we can't have the, you know, like the family be primary, you know, for we got to sacrifice the family for the war effort, you have to break the family bonds that you care so much about and separate, because it's good for the war. And late spring, in some respects, is like the flip of that, like he made a movie that flipped that on its head where it's the same thing where the occupation is almost saying like, we have to break up the family so that you can have your like liberated woman in a sense, uh, even though it ends with her actually being married. Uh, the idea being that it's like, you know, the occupation is sponsoring. This is like showing Noriko as, you know, a very liberated woman who doesn't want to get married. She wants to do her own thing. Uh, she wears trousers and modern clothes and everything, but she's forced right. into an arranged marriage, and that's bad, and that's tragic, and the the family is also broken up. There's a interesting parallel between those two things that I'd never really thought about before, uh, and it's interesting because it kind of reflects him resisting uh, both of those forces uh, right. yeah. that were imposing, like he 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 created tragedies out of what were essentially supposed to be propaganda on both sides. Uh, and they're both about the breakup of the family. And, you know, he never did break up his own family with his mother. He kept her, you know, you know, maintained their family, you know, throughout his entire life. Um, and it's, it's interesting with the arranged marriages to, um, I, I read a book over Christmas break uh, by Mira Jacob. It's a graphic novel called Good Talk, and it's amazing. I read it from cover to cover. And in it, she talks about her parents who were from India and had an arranged marriage and left to immigrate to America so her father could study to be a doctor, you know, back in like the 60s or uh, maybe 70s. 
Uh, and she she relates a lot of conversations she's had with her parents about arranged marriages and as, you know, being born in America and growing up American, you know, she's relatively repulsed by it. But at a certain point, she decides to try it, too, because, you know, from her perspective, like, I don't want an arranged marriage. I also don't really want to be unmarried. And I think that's right. maybe the central tension for a lot of the audience for Ozu's films Absolutely. on all of this yep. marriage question is women were ha- probably having the conversation all the time that said, where they were saying, I don't really want an arranged marriage. You know, when I'm 30, I don't want to be unmarried. Right. You know, women in America and all around the world have that conversation all the time. A lot of men have that conversation all the time. Right. And I think that that is maybe like one of the, like the keys in a sense. And that, the because like you're weighing the pros and cons of it because it's not something you want, but it's there's, there's maybe a worse outcome. Right. But, also, what I feel like Ozu was maybe just starting to get tor- towards and exploring, but never really got to it, is that w- why do women have to acquiesce to getting married, whether it's a love marriage or, uh, you know, an arranged marriage? And it's because of, you know, unequal pay, like women and that they're, you know, barred from all of the professions that would pay them well enough that they could live independently. You know, throughout all of his marriage films, a lot of the women say, I'm not ready for marriage. I don't want to be married. I, I don't want to do it. And to a one, they all have professional careers like the women in this movie. But those jobs are not paying enough right. to really support themselves on their own in the kind of life that they grew up in. So like marriage is the only option, but then they lose their career. It's a, you know, uh, a shitty choice that all that society is forcing all of them onto. And I think in a sense, Ozu is possibly like working towards the idea of like, you know, getting to the point where like, you know, saying, you know, women should be paid more, should have more access to the jobs, but he's, there's nothing hinting that he's going towards that. It's just that like, that's the only possible third way is that they have to be able to have an independent life, right. which right. society functionally bars them from. So marriage becomes the only option. Um, and uh, and it's, it's interesting how intricately connected all of those social things are to the point where like Ozu could have been making all of these movies for decades and never really even considered like, well, maybe the problem is, women can't have the jobs that I have and women aren't paid enough at the jobs they're, they're paid they're in, in right. the first place. Uh, Cause that's, that's the third way is they don't have to get married because they can afford not to, and they can have a life and a career that they want. Well, and it's, it's worth noting that the issue that um, Ozu is bumping up against here is one that has continued in Japan since then. Like, um, like the sort of what, what's, what has been has been can be called the sort of m-shaped employee uh like uh employment uh, i forget what they call it employment graph uh for women in japan is is it is slowly leveling out into what what we have what people have in the united states where it's sort of a it's an inverted u where like oh you remain employed throughout your life including when you have children and things like that uh traditionally in japan and even pretty still fairly common when you get married here you drop out of the employment market. Uh, mm-hmm. That's becoming less and less possible because 
much like everywhere else on earth, people are not paid right. enough money for both family members, one of the family members to drop out of the employment market mm-hmm. these days. Uh, but women are paid less. And uh, it's always been for very, like literally the last graph I looked at, that was still the shape. Like, so the M is where the employment drops down around, uh, around marriage and then uh, child rearing time. Like mm-hmm. the graph has remained M shaped for, even even to this day, it is less. The M is less severe, but it's still there. Um, and and like, it would be interesting to find out whether Ozu would get to that point. We never will, obviously. But like, because everybody in Japan as a as a whole, like the government talks about, it, everybody talks about like that that problem, but it never. The answer never like it never gets to the point where the where they we're like oh we never get to the point where we're actually going to solve that problem you know what i mean we're going to talk about that problem and mm-hmm. things will be proposed but then like not a lot of progress will be made and uh it, it it's it's interesting because like he is confronting a thing that is still a problem to this day which is mm-hmm. oh we're just mm-hmm. we don't we don't have a system like we're not willing to build a system where 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 women are given those choices and and where where that possibility even exists um yeah he maybe he would get there it's really hard to say right because like Mm -hmm. like because it's something so easy for to be blind to if you're part of the dominant system right absolutely Yeah. yeah Um, and so like, but yeah, it's just interesting to me that like, oh yeah, like this is, I mean, there's literally like, there's, I read a hundred articles a year talking about, you know, how, how Japan could get more women to get into and stay in the employment market throughout their, throughout their life and not have them drop out of it. And then we get into the same discussions we have in the United States where it's like, well, you know, you would actually have to have like facilities that would allow women to do that so that like, you know, because like women take up the are the dominant caregivers in Japan for children, but also for the elderly. So you would have to have a society that's geared towards making sure that 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 they're not the dominant caregivers in those situations. But Mm -hmm. then like you have to build that and then like, you know, you have to react we have very strong reactionary groups here that would like, well, then you're going to destroy Japanese families and they're never going to recover and it's going to be all over and the country's just going to burn down to the ground and sink into the ocean. Um, and it, it's, you know, it's a problem that even Ozu's talking about in, you know, 1962, right? Like, it's right. it's interesting. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, I just, uh, yeah, it's, I, I, I was thinking of that too when, I said that because I've I've read, you know, maybe one or two articles uh, that have talked about. I think Abe tried to make a big push of like, you know, we need like to have a ton more women in the workforce. So right. I remember and seeing they, that article them, back in the right. Great Recession. Like, this is the way we'll exit the Great Recession. Right. Uh, and then it never really happened. It, no, it and, improved, and, and, and but it didn't one of transform. Of, yeah, there's, yeah, he's one of a ton of them. Those mm-hmm. politicians who have said that. And it's always there's all like a lot of air quotes, and then nothing really happens because no one's really willing to implement the policies that would like actually make that happen. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like the really hardcore policies where you make it happen, they're always like well, incentive programs that like don't go anywhere. Keep in mind that the party that Abe belongs to, it's it's uh, sort of governing council. 
finally, quote unquote, let two women onto the council, but they're not allowed to talk. Uh, oh, Jesus, they're none of uh, actually. A solution men. to that would be would be to get Japan into an external war. Right, yeah. right. They, so they, that, and legitimately, so that women that's have to a have lot of Japanese po- politicians' answer is actually, you know, you know, it'd be really great right now, a war. Mm. Um, yeah, and, and that's so, uh, <laughs> of course, of course. Like, boy, you um, know what would solve our economic problems? A good old war. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, no, it, it's. So I want to talk about something totally related, okay? Uh, okay? That one of the other spirals I went on was trying to figure out how realistic it would be in 1962 that this couple would not have a refrigerator. <laughs> I spent about two hours on this uh, <laughs> doing research. Um, and here's what I found out. There's no way to get an answer. I got, sti- I got like 12 different statistics that none of which match. Uh, one of the research company, one of the research groups, which is the Japanese like energy usage research group, says that about twenty percent of households had refrigerators in nineteen twenty. Another separate research group said that somewhere in the neighborhood of like forty percent would have had refrigerators. Another one says that se- eighty, almost ninety percent of ha- families had refrigerators by nineteen seventy, which. Would be an amazing amount of growth if between 1962 to 1970 you, like, literally went up by 20 to 30 percent per year, almost per year. Um, yeah. Like, I I did a lot of research trying to figure out exactly, and then I found a totally un, an unsourced article which I do not trust, claiming that 90 percent of houses had refrigerators in 1960, 65. I do not believe that one. Um, <laughs> that seems a little high. No references at all. Yeah, but like, yeah. All right. I, I, well, the reason I brought it up is because I was like, I was like, while I was watching, I was like, I was like, really? They don't like refrigerators, like that. What are called the three treasures, which mm-hmm. is a which is a tongue in cheek joke about the the imperial crown, imperial treasures, but like of Japanese society, which would have been like a TV, a refrigerator, and I think a washing machine, like a and vacuum how quickly, cleaner. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to remember. Was it a vacuum cleaner or a washing machine that was like the was, three treasures of? It's a vacuum cleaner in an autumn afternoon, at least, like where she right, goes right, to right. the yeah. neighbors I, and like, they have all yeah. three of them. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there was a kind of a, a joke though about like what three things mm-hmm. you should have as a fam. It might have been a vacuum cleaner. I can't remember. Like I, in, in the Ozu movies, it is they talk about vacuum cleaners a lot in Ozu films. Um, but there was this sort of like a really hard push in the '60s to like, like. Well, part of it is just consumerism, where it's like you need to buy these things to be like modern, but they are like generally like major life improvements, right? A refrigerator is mm-hmm. like, so extreme life improvement, so it's popular. Oh yeah, took and off rapidly, massively right? like, labor saving. Like right, right, a right, washing right. machine and like a vacuum cleaner, they're all domestic labor saving devices. Right. like that, they really materially massively improve people's lives. Right. Um, so. And so yeah. I was trying to figure out if they would have it. And then I got into another sort of spiral talking to my wife about whether or not, like, so when you start a family, okay, so here's the interesting thing. Oh, gosh, we have so much to talk about in no time. Um, <laughs> when you get married in Japan, traditionally, and by traditionally I mean still widely practiced, it is traditional for the husband to bring a sort of what would be called a dowry uh, in English, but, like, it, it's not necessarily, it is a, it is meant to be the the seed money for the family to start, okay? Okay. And it's given mm-hmm. to the wife's family, but then it's used to start the family. It's used to rent an apartment. It's used to buy appliances. 
Well, Koichi's family is well off, relatively speaking. The chances mm-hmm. that he wouldn't bring that dowry into the relationship is, I believe, pretty low. So, in theory, they would have had seed, and and he wouldn't have necessarily had to raise it all by himself. His family probably would have helped him with it. Um, and so, he, why they would be just married and not have a refrigerator when refrigerators are rapidly growing in popularity is kind of baffling, honestly. Like, it's a good plot point, and it makes for an interesting story. But it's like it, it's like you're you're a twenty something year old who just started a family. Presumably, you're you're from a pretty well off family. Your family has enough money to hand you five, you know, even if it's like in nineteen sixty two money, two hundred dollars worth of cash, just kind of apropos of right. just because you asked. Like how you probably would have brought enough seed money th- that sort of dowry into it that you would have been able to. You probably should have a refrigerator. It's it's a little weird, and she doesn't have a vacuum cleaner either. And it's like, I know he's supposed to be like, quote unquote, bad with money, but like, then like there probably wouldn't have been a marriage because he wouldn't have been able to bring the dowry in, and then like they would have been like, right, what right. what kind of insolvent mm-hmm. insolvent weirdo are you trying to marry our daughter with no cash? Like, what are you what are you trying to pull here? You're not going to be able to give her a good life if you can't like scrape together enough money to like have a to start a family. I, I don't know. It's a weird idiosyncratic thing, but I started digging into it really hard because <laughs> I was like, this is, this doesn't feel realistic. Would, this is strange. Is that something that do you think, is that something that would imply to an audience at the time that like, Oh, this was not an arranged marriage. This was a love marriage. And, it's possible. And that, that could have been would an it, implication. Yeah. Would it, would it imply they're not married? Uh, they're definitely married. Okay. Uh, like, <laughs> I, I, I will say one thing about Ozu. I don't, Ozu, I don't think, I, I, and maybe even the audience itself was not ready for that kind of relate. You know what I mean? Like that's that's a different kind of movie, right? Like that's that's some that's Tokyo stuff. Twilight, right? Uh, exactly. You're and early you're spring, a very different kind of movie. Yeah, um, uh, they're definitely Tokyo Twilight. Uh, Tokyo Twilight's his abortion movie, uh, and early spring okay. is his movie where. The father raised two daughters alone because the mother ran off with her lover when they were little girls in the 30s. And then the mother has returned. But now the younger daughter is shacking up with her boyfriend. Uh, So that there's there's a couple of movies that are far, far more like scandalous. Uh, And they were less less popular with his audience. Uh, Right. But his audience probably would not be would not be keen for that to be the case. You know, yeah. like it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they're uh, definitely married. Uh, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, thinking about that scene uh, again where, you know, Akiko and uh, Koichi are at home and then Michiko shows up and then Miura shows up. And that's where you have like the, you know, the two young couples, so to speak, like together in the one scene. And it's the only time Michiko and Miura are together, really. Uh it made, I suddenly like had a brainwave where I was just like, oh, this is why this scene happened. Because like most people watching the movie would have understood this. Like, you know, 
Akiko totally let like Michiko know that like Miura was coming by tomorrow to like talk Absolute, about the golf yeah. clubs again. Yeah. And like, so she said, come on over and bring the money then. Like they had already arranged right. everything totally. and right. out, right. outmaneuvered the men so that Michiko could hang out with Miura a little bit. So like, that's like, that's one of those like little subtleties that I think gets lost on a lot of people that, that don't remember it's a female melodrama right. centrally in a lot of ways so right, right, right. <laughs> and like to be clear like yeah it's all it, it 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 is definitely that kind of stuff like that is that is definitely how you would read that and like we talk about like <laughs> it may seem weird but like we are talking about how like they're just standing on the station platform and there's like like by Jap- by japanese movie stand there's a lot of tension there like oh yeah <laughs> it reads really it reads really clearly as like oh right. like they both really want to like talk <laughs> like there's there's a there's a strong like a set of like attraction there and they're both yeah. sort of like trying to like mm-hmm. avoid it um like not really but like <laughs> right. you know they're trying to stay polite right but like um so the other thing that i think is interesting and then like to change directions again we talked about arranged marriages and the interesting thing about arranged marriages is the word, the idea that gets translate like translated into arranged marriage in English is really more of a like the better thing would be matchmaking would be the more appropriate mm-hmm. term. Mm-hmm. And so, like, what like obviously prior to a time like this, it was more serious. It was, but like, it's always been couched as like, oh, we're going to introduce this guy to you, and you can just like let us know what you think about him. Um, is especially in this time period, and and the, and so that the thing about it is, is like, obviously sometimes there's more force behind it. Like, no, this is the this is the guy. But like, the sort of one of the things that the movie's sort of talking about is like, well, she met that guy that they thought was good for her, and seemed and like they liked she liked him. He seemed nice, and so, um, they decided to get married, and like. When we talk about the statistics of match of arranged marriages versus uh, love marriages, it really mostly is actually a statistic about how they met, rather than a statistic about their actual necessarily feelings about each other. If that makes sense, mm-hmm. um, and like oddly enough, matchmaking is kind of back on the rise in Japan a little bit because in a modern society, it's really really difficult to meet new people. Um, and so, and and the they are kind of abandoning the term arranged marriage because it doesn't really fit. But like even at this point, like it's mostly like, oh, mom and dad like are worried about this. But also, the, as you mentioned, the daughter and the husband and the son are worried about like, oh, am I going to be able to find somebody? Like, mm-hmm. I'm getting older. I'm working, you know, fucking eleven hours a day, like. When am I gonna meet a person? And so you task the people with more free time in your life, with the job of like, hey, can you, uh, you know, hunt around a little bit and see if there's anybody good that I could like meet? But it's always sort of that couch and that idea of like, well, you can meet them, and if you like, don't like them, like, whatever, it's okay. We'll we'll keep looking. Um, yeah. yeah. So I, it, it's interesting just because like, I that like. The, the term arranged marriage in English is an extremely sort of loaded term, right? Like, it feels like, oh, you had no say in what's going to happen here. Uh, like, it was arranged without your approval, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, of course, like I said, 
prior to this time that uh, that was not uncommon to a certain extent like you you there was always meeting the person and there was always a chance that it would be rejected but a lot of things were arranged but by 1960s i think most of what's being used as the term arranged marriage is still is more of just matchmaking than it is anything mm-hmm. else there's unless you're like i think probably really high aristocratic in terms of like your family's position your ability to say no is pretty i think it's pretty much there uh, yeah you're not uh, <laughs> like she's not being like oh well this is the guy there's nobody else it's him or yeah. it's him or the highway and, you know you do see that in the movies where the ozu movies where the mother is still alive because like you know it's not like that's one of the things thematically that recurs in a lot of his movies when the when the older men are tasked with being involved in the matchmaking they're bumbling and bad at it yeah yeah <laughs> And, you know, you can right. almost, like, imagine, like, being in an audience in the 60s and, like, you know, the, you know, Kawhi, you know, is like, oh, I've got someone. And you can just almost hear the audience go, oh. oh yeah. No, totally. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, like, no, right. not more bumbling men screwing things up. <laughs> right. And, yeah, and, and yeah it so, definitely is meant to read for their for their audience, yeah. right? Like, it's like, oh, yeah. man, like, this is going to happen. We're going to have one of these, huh? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what quick question since I mentioned Kawhi. Do you think they named him Kawhi because it is so close to Kawaii? Is it supposed to be a joke kind of like his name? Like just very subtle, but like uh, every single time I saw his name in the subtitles, I was just like, oh, Kawaii. <laughs> I mean, it's possible. I mean, like it's hard to say because like I don't like there's um, those kind of like name jokes can get really like. Yeah, it's kind of almost a bilingual joke in a sense, like where like that's why I was wondering, because like, you know, I would imagine from the perspective of someone native to the language, you don't necessarily make that leap where I make that leap because I recognize the anglicization of those two words is one letter different. Uh, right, and right. If someone's not bilingual, they'll never like know that like this word in English and this other word in English are written almost identically, even if right. they're pronounced pretty differently in Japanese. Uh, I mean, but Ozu did speak English. He grew up, you know, learning English in his middle schools that he was involved in. So who knows? So. Yeah, I mean, it'd be it'd be interesting to know, like, I, what, like, for example, a weird thing is, like, he uses the same family name, Hirayama, a lot. Uh-huh. And, like, I don't know why that is. I don't know what his, mo- like, I why that's... I think it's just that serialization type of thing like you know right it's uh, weird because they're not the same family but they're kind of the same family right it's not the same family but it's kind of the same roles and it's the same actors and i think he got in his head that like oh if i have an actor you know if i'm gonna have if i'm gonna cast setsukahara i'll just name her noriko because that name fits her like i think it might might have been just as relaxed as that like oh we'll just use this name because we're going to use these actors and that that really fits or yeah maybe this is this kind of story exactly it's just a really interesting thing that i think where i was like huh it's like the zelda video games it's just remixing all the same elements I think right. it, yeah. yeah. I do right. think it's there's no deep meaning there. I think it's merely right. convenience and like what just felt right, you know. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so. it's just I nice. just find it really kind of like an interesting like thing about 
it. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, okay. like It is interesting. Like, okay, I that's what we, we do. I think we need to pull huh? this to a close, guys. It's, uh, yeah, it's been should. a fantastic conversation. I've been very happy with it, and I don't think I'm going to be able to cut anything, but <laughs> it is getting too long. I will point out one last note. I forgot to mention when I was talking about the one foot in the past, one foot in the future. There is a scene of the Hirayama's pantry where we see a case of Sapporo right beside a case of Canada Dry, which I was very happy about. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, Ginger Ale is very popular here. It's yeah. It's been a fantastic, uh, fantastic conversation. Adam Speakerman, thank you so much for joining us. Glad and, to be here. Uh, Thanks for having yeah, me. Yeah. Always, always informative to have you around and a really really enjoyable mm-hmm. so next week we will be switching gears we'll be talking about another melville film with uh Les Doulos, uh from 1962 as well uh it's very this, fun it's a very fun it? movie good yeah. good yeah uh but this week has been an autumn afternoon of a very fun movie in its own right mm-hmm. also from 1962 uh directed by Ozu. So thank you so much for listening to Lost Criterion. I am, as always, the Adam Glass. With me, as always, John Patrick Oatari Dorgan, and we'll see you next time. Bye. 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 Austin Criterion. I'm your co-host Adam Glass. You can find me on Twitter at the Adam Glass. My partner is John Patrick Oatari Dorgan, and you can find him at J Patrick Dorgan. Check out more of the show at LostInCriterion.com or hey, give us a review on iTunes. It's nice. If you really like what you hear, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash lostincriterion. Hey, our theme music is by Jonathan Hape. Check him out at jonathanhape.com. And thanks for listening. We appreciate it.